You're listening to a Weeby Geeks Network podcast. It's the WDW Tiki Room with Kristen and Al John. I've been waiting for this my whole life. Sorcerer Radio. Welcome to the scare floor. SRSounds.com. The vehicle doors will close automatically. Please remain seated during your tour, keeping your hands and arms inside the vehicle, and kindly refrain from smoking. Thank you. Beginning of Grand Circle Tour of Tomorrowland aboard the People Mover, the first system of its kind in the world. Since its 1967 opening, the People Mover has carried more than 50 million guests. the way is Star Tours, a thrilling new adventure inspired by the George Lucas Star Wars films. Hello, I am C-3PO and this is my counterpart, R2-D2. Welcome to the Star Tours Tomorrowland spaceport. R2 says that flights are scheduled to begin this winter. I do hope you'll join us. It seems wherever we go, adventure is sure to follow. Space Mountain. For everyone's safety, we remind you to please remain seated.
Inside Space Mountain, you can race through the cosmos, past spiraling galaxies and meteor showers, an experience that's truly out of this world. a sample of the high-speed adventure that awaits you in Space Mountain. theater, Michael Jackson challenges galactic powers in Captain EO, an unprecedented 3D musical adventure. Just ahead is Mission to Mars. There you can blast off on a voyage to the mysterious red planet. Warning, you have invaded the electronic realm of the master computer program. Prepare for the game grid of Tron.
have escaped Tron's game grid for now, users. But take heed. Next time you may not fare so well. You are going to be a force for good and a very important sorcerer. The following is an original production of the Sorcerer Radio Network. Are you insane? Broadcasting live from Music City. Walt Disney's... WDW Tiki Room. The show about all things Disney. Hey, Michael, me amigo. Pay attention, it's show time. So it is. And what darling people I have sitting under me. With Kristen and Al John. They better start the show rolling. Welcome back to yet another edition of WDW Tiki Room. The show about all things Disney on Sorcerer Radio. I'm Al John. And I'm Kristen. Hello, Kristen. Happy 2016. Happy 2016. We are back. If you missed some of our shows, and some of our shows archived at www.teakroom.com, you may have missed our spoiler-free review of Star Wars The Force Awakens. It's only the number one film of all time. It's made billions of dollars in box office, and I would hope that you would have seen the film at this point. (laughs) But uh, if you haven't, the spoiler-free review, which means we don't give away any secrets, is up at www.tkroom.com and on our various uh, podcatcher links like iTunes and Stitcher. But uh, we also have a very special show for the holidays you may have missed where Stephen, uh, Steve Swanson and I from Muppet Cast actually talk about a Muppet Family Christmas, which was a lot of fun. Do you like that show? You like the Muppets? Sure. Sure. Okay. Uh, You have an announcement for all the people regarding your Dining at Disney podcast. I do. I have a new host. Who is it? It is Bubba. All right. So if you don't know Bubba, it's Big Bubba B, Sorcerer Radio Correspondent Extraordinaire. Joining you on the Dining at Disney podcast, the new podcast will be up over the weekend. So it's going to be delightful. You're going to love it. And delicious. And delicious. Uh, once again, you can reach us over social media, WDW Tiki Room, on Facebook and Twitter. Jedi Musketeer, if you want to just touch base with me on Twitter and Facebook, and of course, Dining at Disney with Kristen. Um, the parks, people are starting to get ready to take their vacations. We want to remind everybody that this show's preferred travel partner is Kristen. <laughs> Have her book your Disney trip, your Universal trip, your Adventures by Disney extravaganza, which, by the way... Your cruises. your All your cruises. No matter what the cruise line. It doesn't have to just be Disney or... It can be Norwegian. Norwegian. It can be Princess. Celebrity. It can be whatever you like. Yes, Kristen will definitely help you out. So just a quick reminder as people get to start planning their trips. So, all of that out of the way... Uh, Sorcerer Radio is also celebrating 15 years of being on the air. And, you know, we there's a lot of people discussing about, hey, Live 365 is going out of business. Is that going to affect Sorcerer Radio? No, 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 not at all. All you have to do is download our free apps at srsounds.com or sorcererradio.com. You can check it out. Download the free app. Stream it from the website if you are so inclined because we are working with a brand new partner that helps license all of our music, so everything's completely legal, everything's great. You're not going to discover any interruption of any service whatsoever, and we're just going to give you the best quality programming and music um, as our library is so big. It's getting bigger all the time, 
and uh, we want to make sure you get it the easy and fun way um, by checking out esrasounds.com. So uh, we're going to be celebrating our 15-year anniversary in February. It's a long time. It's a long time for Disney Station to be on the air. Okay, now to the nitty gritty. Bob Gurr. We met Bob Gurr, Disney legend and Imagineer. And uh, what are your thoughts on Bob Gurr? He's very nice. <laughs> He's very smart. Now, it's been a few years. That was at the Sip and Stroll event, right? Yeah, it's been several years It's been years several now. years. It was his birthday during the Sip and Stroll. And he was so instrumental in so many of the attractions at Walt Disney World and Disneyland that you know and love. Did you know that he designed the monorail? You knew that, right? I knew that. Of course. But did you know that other mechanical feats he had, he was instrumental in creating the mysterious UFO that soared over the closing ceremony of the 1984 LA Olympic Games. Did you know that? No, and I don't really remember those Olympic Games. (laughs) He also consulted on the animated T-Rex figure featured in Steven Spielberg's motion picture, Jurassic Park. No, I remember Jurassic Park. Yes. yes. I saw it in the movie theater. Well, he recently did a uh, live interview panel, and we're going to present basically the highlights of that panel where he talks about his early days, of course, his days working with legendary Walt Disney, the man himself, and uh, all kinds of the attractions and things that he worked on. So without any further ado, check out Mr. Bob Gerd. I am your host, your ghost host. (laughs) Sorcerer Radio. There's no turning back now. SRSounds.com. So how did Walt find you? How did you get into Imaginary? Very simple. I was at the Art Center College, one over there, and there was a guy who was a job placement officer who placed me at Ford years ago. Happened to ask, do you do outside work? I didn't, but I said yes. That's the first clue you want to do in life. <laughs> Next day, that was only 20-second meeting, by the way. Next day, I got a call, go to the Disney studio and meet Mr. Irvine there in about 20 minutes. But I had seen an article in the Los Angeles Times some weeks before of a thing called Disneyland, and I thought, wow, that would be a fabulous place to go someday. Then I was also friends with Ub Iwerks, who was the man who started the company with, uh, with uh, Walt. And he shows movies of what's going on in the back lot. And there was a little chassis of a car, no body. And I thought, you don't suppose they need a body on a little car. And I'm a body designer. That was a good guess. And I went to work. And 27 years later, when they fired me, I got all those jobs done. <laughs> That's uh, 45 seconds of life, there we right? There and we're done. There we go. <laughs> so that's incredible. So when you heard about that Disneyland was coming and you were getting involved, did it just seem like a crazy idea because it really hadn't been done before? No, you got to realize there was no such thing as um, uh, Theme Park 101 and college. Uh, everything that everybody was going to do had never been done before. So it didn't matter what you were educated at. You weren't going to use your education anyway. Walt was always going to give uh, out uh, requests to do this and do this and figure things out. And he'd never done it either, of course, you know, but, but he had done a- animation and films. But now he wanted to do, a, you know, a brick-and-mortar uh, park, and it was quite radical. So basically, he figured out what kind of people might be able to do the things he wanted done. And he was very typical when he would ask you to do something, and it was something you'd never done before. Like we had animators who had never sculpted and then Walt said well I think you'd be a good sculptor why don't you just start uh, that, that's how we would uh, would treat people and of course in my case since I was a uh trained in body design you know just let's say the surface development part of a car Walt assumed that if I 
did auto styling, I did mechanical engineering. <laughs> I just shut up and just kept working. And it turned out, uh, I have no mechanical engineering training whatsoever, uh, but I got the best mechanical engineering training by actually doing the job that I wasn't qualified for. Now stop and think of that. It, it, no, really, if you were to uh, go to a school, you have a curriculum, you, you come out of the end, four years, you'll come out at the other end, uh, like you're trained in a deep trough and you can't get out, but you know how to do what they taught you to do, you have, your, your mind's, not, and there's no more flexibility. But under Walt Disney and with people that he would gather, people were free to think in all directions in any combination, any time to try to figure stuff out. That seemed to be the giant clue around Walt Disney that you just don't see in a lot of people. Right. And so what was it like to work with him when you first initially met him? Because obviously he was you know, really famous, really well known. So what kind of man was he like to work with? On one hand, he was very serious. And on the other hand, when he was excited about something, that little eyebrow would just shoot up and add a little twinkle in his eye like, uh, oh, I'm going to have something nobody's got. Wait till I show the world this thing. So it's kind of a pixie-like thing. But day in, day out, I would say he's kind of slightly serious, slightly agitated a little bit. And I think the source of that was, uh, like you run across a lot of people like that, they are thinking the whole time of what they're going to do. And... It's, it's, a, it's such a consuming thing, almost like 24 hours a day. I think at, at night, some of us, we think all night long, and we wake up and go, oh, I got it, I got it, write it down real quick. Then I got to go to work in the morning and hope I remember it. His mind worked like that, and a lot of people he collected worked just like that. It wasn't a eight-hour type of day. Wall also had another characteristic that was... Um, kind of fascinating and very natural, and I've seen other executives uh, in later years do this. Instead of having classical management matrix where you have an officer at the top of the company, you have workers down at the lower part of the company, the information goes down, information turns around, comes back, and it goes through filters going both directions so you don't get the true answer. Walt would uh, walk out of his office and walk around that whole back lot at the studio, see what's going on with his own eyes. Stop and think. You won't be more than about three days out of whack before he'll notice it's, it, you need to do something a little bit different. The time saving is fabulous. But here's the other thing. Let's say uh, you're working on something and you thought you understood what he wanted, and then he sees it and it's not what he wanted. How many times you run across a manager who says, you do that dumb thing one more time, I'm going to fire you. I, I've warned you. Well, guess what? You are not going to contribute another idea to that guy. You guys are different up here, aren't you? <laughs> yeah, we don't get fired. Yeah, right. Um, just get moved around. So, uh, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, I notice you can move people pretty far away from they used to live here. <laughs> yeah, they, yeah, they still get the bicycle. <laughs> oh, yeah. But... Uh, the way he would do it is, let's say uh, you're, not, you're not doing it quite as expected, he wouldn't chew you out. He'd actually look at something and he'd say, say, uh, Bobby, did you ever think of, oh, I didn't think of that one, Walt. Now you are, you can't wait to share your new idea of his new idea that just happened 20 seconds before. Now, you got this rapport that's going on and you have a free exchange. You understand? That's how that kind of a loop works. That, to him, was natural, and people that would work there, it didn't take very long before 
that was their natural daily MO. Now, I also got to remember, to a lot of people, let's say even as late as 1954, when I started with the company, uh, a guy like Walt would seem like a god. In other words, I mean, seriously, a really famous, famous person. I, I would see times there'd be executive other companies, they'd get too close to Walt and their lower lip would quiver. They didn't know quite how to talk because they're, they're in the presence of Walt Disney, the god, you know. Uh, Walt did everything possible to make himself approachable. He'd, he'd unloosen his tie and make himself look kind of ratty so that he could have a conversation. And he would always point out to people, he says, well, you know, to get this stuff done, I have to talk to people, you know. And so the rhythm uh, in the company always developed over, over a while. Took a couple of weeks to get used to the fact that, oh, my God, here comes Walt. No, it's a case of, hiya, Walt. It's as simple as that. Because now you have to have everybody's on that same level. Now you can have uh, a critique and the design is good or the design is bad or, or needs some work. Now, if the design was good, what you're doing is good, Walt would simply walk in, he'd just look around. Sometimes he wouldn't say a word. He'd just walk around, he'd look at your drafting board and, you know, or maybe say something, he'd walk out. Uh, about five minutes later, the guy down the hall would come and run into the room and says, what is it you're doing? Walt just came in and said, you gotta go see what Gurr's doing down there. Okay. That's your attaboy. Now, see, he never gave a personal attaboy to anybody. It's just, it, you just don't do that. But he couldn't wait to go tell somebody else how good your stuff was. So this was a very strange kind of way to do that. Uh, he had another characteristic when he was uh, coming down the hallway to go to your room. You see that little cough? You have a little, he had a little double cough. And this was like you um, had the 10-second warning. You know, clean, clean up your act real quick there. Your door is always open. You never leave a closed door there. Uh, because he will show up at any time without warning in any, in any building, particularly the shops. He loved to run around the shops all the time. So that's the general sentence setting. That's a long-winded answer to what was Walt like to work with. Uh, a lot of people today will say, uh, well, no, that was 50 years ago. People don't work like that. Well, some years ago, uh, when I, I had my own company later, um, I worked for Steven Spielberg. He was running like $200 million worth of film product, and he had like 46 employees. He had a cute little set of buildings out behind Universal next to a river. He did exactly the same thing. He talked to the people doing the work, and he didn't have any layers of management. Another guy, Steve Wynn in Las Vegas, uh, you know, he was like the mogul of Las, Las Vegas. He talked directly to people, and he wouldn't even go through his secretary if he wanted to phone. He had a question, he'd just phone you up. Huh. And remember, that's the guy that's running the Mirage. He was running the, the, the you know, later the Bellagio, and now he's got two more Wynn hotels. Um, Spielberg and Wynn and Walt, they're very similar kind of guys to, to work with. They, they understood this thing of that tight communication, not being driven by methodologies, or uh, procedures or protocols. That, that's the big lesson. Now, when I walk around this place here, I'm I'm still just like I'm in Google. I'm in Google. You know, it's like everything I see here is like I was born 60 years too late. Now I can't be here. You know. <laughs> <laughs> but you built Disneyland. Yeah, I'm yeah, pretty yeah, sure. Well, I yeah, okay. you, you win. No, but this is. Um, this is so much like the early days of what was then called Wed Enterprise, Walter Elias Disney. Uh, it's, it's almost eerie. Uh, and I look around and I see bright looking faces and it's like, this is starting IQ 180 or what is it? It's, uh, <laughs> That's not mine. <laughs> I don't know why. No, but there's, 
when you go to places, um, you can see the enthusiasm on people's faces. Uh, I was two weeks ago. I was at SpaceX. I got to see him build rockets down there. I met Elon Musk. Um, I'm being chauffeured today on a Tesla S. I think it's a D85. Is it a D85? Ooh, he's going to give me the full pedal this weekend. I think. <laughs> no, but there, uh, there are companies uh, that are uh, remind me so much of uh, Walt's time. Uh, a long time ago, and, and if you understand what that spark is up here, uh, I'm guessing you have some uh, management uh, that, you know, what, 17 years started with a couple of geeks, and look, you got 17,000 geeks up here now, <laughs> and, and it looks like you're, you're having fun, but you're productive at the same time. Well, that's the way we used to do it uh, so long ago to get Disneyland built that fast. Okay. You got another question? Yeah, I got a few more. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, you've, you've really, I mean, you designed some of the most incredible rides. I mean, you did Autopia. That was your first project, right? With Autopia them? car, Autopia? yes. Right, and so what was kind of that process in design that? Was that just simply, well, you're just going to design cars? How, like, what was the idea of how big to make them and how, you know, how to make did, them did run? Did you just hear what you just said? I, I don't know. Process. Process. <laughs> we don't use processes. <laughs> we just do it. You just do it. Yeah. Um... That's a bad word. Everybody asks me process. Then I stare at people. I say, process. That's, that's the bad word. That's like being in a rut. Smart people, given a question, and you've never done it before, you don't get there with a process. You get there by clear thinking, off-the-wall thinking, you know, French cats bouncing off a wall type of thinking. And you do that with everybody around you. And guess what? They... The configuration that's going to work gradually becomes very, very visible, and it's never done by a process. Ordinary companies are process mm -hmm. companies, so don't use that word on me again. Okay. All right. So no process. There was, so there was no process involved with creating the animatronics. So, but you did get involved with that, so I want to talk about that, because that's some, some, that's some incredible work that you've done with well, Disney and with Universal. Well, the audio animatronics, remember, uh, I was uh, known as a car guy, because, you know, I fiddled right. around with cars in high school. I rebuilt my own engines and stuff like that. So I had a working knowledge of uh, cars, anyway. Um, and after a number of years, uh, we were doing work for the New York World's Fair, in which I was in charge of designing the Ford Magic Skyway, which is a great big assembly line of cars being moved by wheels with passengers using regular passenger cars. It was, it was about a three-year three job to engineer that thing. Uh, and I was working on um, two of the other attractions. And at the last minute, uh, about four or five months before the park was, or the show fair was going to open, Walt says, Bobby, I want you to design uh, Abraham Lincoln, the body of it. We got one here. We've been working on it for a year. It doesn't work. Uh, the head works. The hands work. But the body won't work. And I thought, I don't know anything about human physiology. Uh, and Lincoln doesn't have any wheels, you know. So, But guess what? In maybe a minute, I looked at that Lincoln that was not working, and I saw it as an aircraft fuselage made out of a thin wall uh, steel tube uh, with uh, little pneumatic cylinders, a few hydraulic cylinders, little Fafner aircraft bearings. I did not see it as a human and I did not see it in the way the machine had been evolved in a design in the machine shop. That's an example when I'm talking about free thinking, that had I not been a free thinker, I would have not had the direction to go within about two minutes from the time Walt asked me to do that. I was in a glider club. I just happened to have a, a steel tube fuselage uh, airplane, air, aircraft that I was restoring, and I immediately saw that's the way to do it. How many people have ever been to the Walt Disney Family Museum up here? 
Okay, did you see downstairs there's an uh, exhibit with Abraham Lincoln? Nobody remembers seeing that. Oh, you did? Okay. And, uh, in that little window, there's a, there's a steel tube frame. That's the original upper body of Abraham Lincoln, was the first one to go at the, be shown at the New York uh, World's Fair. That was the high point uh, of Walt's pride in doing auto animatronics, and he asked a car guy to do it. <laughs> so I see the education still wouldn't have helped. Yeah, because you know, because we're we're all free thinkers. Um, anyway, I, I own that thing. That's I, I loaned it to him up there, so it's kind of like permanent loan. Uh, so if you haven't been there, if you really want to see uh, a simple way to do an animated figure, fifty years ago, that's what we did. That's it. So have you? So you've obviously been to the parks, you know, since then. Obviously, since you worked there. So, what impresses you now about how animatronics work now and the parks and some of the lands and stuff they're doing? Uh, the evolution of audio animatronics, which is a trade name that Disney Company uses, has um, been constant evolution all the time. Uh, we were sort of the leading edge of uh, doing the first types of what we would call robotic anima animation. We were using some of the latest uh, systems for servos, controls, uh, feedback uh, methodologies that were used in the uh, space program for going to the uh, going to the moon. Uh, so there was parts and systems and components coming online, basically for NASA at that time, and we had access to all that stuff. Walt was always uh, very aware of the latest. Tools, the way to the way to tell stories. So this was a very natural progression. It went very very fast. And by the say in 1972 or three, we developed our own system called DAX, Digital Animation Control System. So we were doing a lot of development in house, uh, leading edge stuff. But as time went on, the rest of the world kind of caught up. Everybody can do this now. And uh, uh, actually, the way we do it now, we actually have a company called Garner Holt uh, uh, Productions out in uh, San Bernardino, California. Uh, Disney lets them do all of the developmental work for all of our uh, theme parks worldwide because they're more like a production house and we have the systems that are all available. A lot of the uh, show control systems are standard, let's say, black boxes you can buy from anybody now. So we're very standardized in that respect. You really don't have to invent serious stuff anymore because there's such an array of stuff that you can use nowadays. Uh, so, th yes, there is that kind of a transition, the development audio animatronics. So it's, it's much more productionized now. Yeah. And so can you talk about the design of the monorail, which is just a huge feature and it's still around you know, Disneyland and Disney World today? How many have you ever rode the Disneyland monorail? Oh, all the hands go up. Thank you very much. I appreciate that. Yeah. Uh, I had never seen that configuration of a monorail. And going back the way Walt would ask somebody to do something, he walks in in uh, October 1958, walks in, shows me these pictures. This is a really ugly-looking train sitting on a, looked like a loaf of bread with a slot in the bottom sitting on a stick. And he says, uh, Bobby, we're going we're gonna to build a monorail system in Disneyland. I want you to get started right away on it and walked out of the room and left me these pictures of this ugly thing. And I'd never seen that configuration. I thought they always hung, you know, from an overhead beam. And again, there you are. We're sitting here like, it wasn't even a meeting. Well, I'm going to, I start, I'm going to start. And guess what? If you are a curious person and you've spent all your time snooping into everything you can snoop into, 
and putting it on your head, and you may never use it, but you might use it someday. And remember, I go back to auto shop, car kit, all that kind of stuff, hanging around with race cars. Um, I had a broad brush idea of how stuff sort of works. A monorail is nothing more than a strange-looking bus. The wheels are simply in line. They sit on top of the road, and then there's wheels running on the side. But they've still got seats, doors, and windows, and people sitting in it. Okay, it's like a streetcar. Oh, well, you can buy that stuff, you know. It's 600-volt uh, uh, power systems. You put 450-volt motors together. And uh, of a suspension system, I knew how uh, these gravel trucks worked. At that time, there was a thing called a Smithway, which was a, kind of an all-in-one unitized suspension. And within two weeks, I had enough uh, drawings that I made that my boss and I were sent over to Germany to talk to the Allweg company, who we were going to work with. And I had enough of the design that we could discuss it in a lot of detail. And then the Germans knew that they were going to sell their design to us. And Walt was, said, no, we're going to use your idea, but it's going to be my train, and we're going to do it ourselves. And then at the end of the week, it was, Mr. Gore is not a licensed diploma engineer. He cannot do this. You're a movie studio. Well, yeah, but I'm doing it. <laughs> True story. Now, that's how fast we would work. Now, remember, that was eight and a half months from the time Walt gave me the picture, and we jumped on the thing, and I had I had about five drafters uh, helping me, and we figured the whole darn thing out, and uh, we had a shop starting to build it, and a commercial uh, company that built garbage trucks, that was closed. Uh, halfway through the job, they were going too slow, so we just picked the job up, put it in the studio, so we had a big sound stage, which was a factory, so my boss said, keep, keep drawing, up, drawing it up, but now you supervise the construction. Uh, eight and a half months, the whole darn thing, and uh, opening day, I gave Richard Nixon, the vice president of the United States, a ride on it. Uh, no estimating, no budgeting, nobody interfering, no project manager, no coordinators, everybody doing the work, talked to everybody all day long. Everybody from the you know, shop level, the people doing the concrete uh, designs, that's how fast you can go uh, if you're a completely free thinker and you've been given something you don't know nothing about. And, and everybody at the WED was, was just like that. That's, that's incredible. Uh, what, uh, what was your favorite project to work on? Oh, the years? little fire engine, the main Anybody Anybody been down to Disney and ride the fire engine? Mm -hmm. That's my fire engine. <laughs> I... I always wanted a fire engine. Ward Kimball was one of uh, Walt's animators. He had a fire engine, 1916 American La France, and I got to drive it in a parade once. I always wanted a fire engine. One day, Walt was in my office, and I said, Walt, you know, we don't want to have a fire engine on Main Street. No, Bobby, we don't. And about 10 minutes later, the accounting department phones up and says, the accounting project number for the new fire engine project is. And I thought, <laughs> yes, you know, I'm going to have a fire, fire engine. I... We built it at a studio in Burbank, and I got a DMV moving permit, and I drove that thing down the Santa Ana Freeway, two-cylinder car, drove it all the way to Disneyland, because that, that was my fire engine, and that's my... Yeah, you asked me a question. What's my best, uh, best attraction? That's it. That's yeah. <laughs> and then what, was there ever a project that you guys just couldn't figure out and didn't end up in, in Disneyland? You know, the curious thing... Uh, today, you run across so many companies and projects that they just grind into a terrible grind, and they just don't work. And now when they do work, they're just miserable the whole time, and then you take them out. 
Walt somehow had a sixth sense of about how far should you go uh, into the future with, in, in any given direction that was not so far that regular folks couldn't do it. Uh, you couple that with a reasonable overall starting configuration of, of a project or a system. Well, what that means is that you didn't reach out too far. Uh, by the time you get the, the work spread out to everybody, everybody finds they can do that stuff in a lot of detail because you didn't reach so far. So every time I hear the word nowadays and somebody says, oh, we have the sophisticated engineers, and oh, you know, and so, oh, no, don't, don't use the word sophistication. <laughs> sophistication means it's about 120% out instead of 110% out, and you're going to have trouble later because um, any, any fool can convince the government to spend money on a crazy idea because the words are terrific, but the parts stink. You know, it's as, it's as simple as that. So that initial configuration and how far you reach is super critical, and Walt was so good at that. So what I'm trying to suggest to you is I can't recall any blind alley we ever went up, at least while I was working there, because we were launched correctly. Um, and so we're going to take questions here in a few minutes if you guys want to start lining up at the mic. Um, what was, uh, if you're looking in the parks today, Disneyland, Disney World, what part or land or anything would you like to get involved with? I'd like to personally tear down all of Tomorrowland at Disneyland. <laughs> Seems to be universal. Yeah. Ah, you're thinking the same here. That whole northeast corner of the park uh, could be something that is somewhere between a, like an avatar and a, and a space tour, space, any kind of a thing, but with a lot of greenery, a lot of logic, a lot of human-scale stuff uh, that's visually very in inspiring, but it would still have monorail. It would still have um, uh, Autopia cars, you know, bump cars, but they're, Tesla's going to make them, aren't they? going to make, you know, would make a little Teslas for every, all the little kids, you know. Uh, but I would like to see something that's really dramatic, dynamic, but has an inviting scale to it. It's kind of hard to do, but in, in words, that's what I would, if I could get away with it, I'd do that. I tell everybody we're going to do it. Yeah, I'm, I'm going to wear them out. To... And how much involvement do you have uh, still with Disney on their parks? Do you still advise on anything? No, uh, work is a four-letter word, and I don't do it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, I, I do have a simple rule. If somebody wants me to take a look at a pro project, uh, buy me a bowl of soup at Mimi's Cafe. I'll take a look. But otherwise, um, uh, work, if I, if I have to give out an invoice, then it's re revenue instead. No, I don't get into any of that. No. I'd rather go take a look and, and look at stuff. I'm asked all the time. But like what we're doing here today, a lot of times people will come up and say, why don't you explain how you guys did that stuff so fast 50 years ago? We're slow and expensive. Can you help, can you help us? So that happens all the time. Yeah. And, uh, so for, for you post-Disney, what was, like, why, why did you leave Disney? Was it just time to go and just, hey, start my own thing? Because you did start your own company right after you left Disney. Yeah, they fired me. <laughs> no, really. Yeah. I, I got in a dispute with the chief engineer of the company. Uh, a simple thing. We were having some great difficulties uh, building uh, Epcot. And we had a lot of engineers by that time were aerospace engineers who were process people. We had so much engineering that by the time I went to the shop and none of that stuff would work and some of the people were really tearing their hair out. And then in a meeting somebody said, who can 
tell us why this is happening. And I said, I can tell you. And then the other people fled the room except for the chief engineer. I didn't realize I insulted the man. Um, and uh, I was fired. As simple as that. Because basically, uh, I said, well, you know, we used to talk to the mechanics down at Disneyland, and we get the feedback from the field as to how your systems and parts worked in very, very great detail. You can't wear a tie and be an engineer and go down to Disneyland and go talk to the mechanics. You've got to be a guy just like them. They know the most about your design, and they can be obstinate and not tell you. Or you can befriend them, and they'll say, say, Bob, you know this bearing, the way you got that thing mounted? I want to show you how it really works. That's the guy you want to listen to. I explained that to this chief engineer, and he looked at me and he said, words to the effect, he says, no grease monkey is ever going to tell my licensed engineers how to design anything. And I thought, woo. Uh, I was glad they fired me because I, within two weeks I was president of the Gur Design Incorporated. And uh, <laughs> as you can see, you see some Pro uh, projects over here that are not Disney, like a sinking ship in Las Vegas, a flying saucer in the Olympics, the L.A.s, that kind of stuff. Um, yeah, branching out and doing more work. I loved having somebody come to me with something that had never been done before that was so risky nobody else wanted to do it. And if it's that risky, I'll take it. Guess what? No, this is an invitation for you to expand your mind more. Uh, you, you've had a lifetime. You're not afraid to do some of this stuff. And you kind of know how far out is too far. Somebody bring me a crazy job, and I said, no, it's not going to work, and I wouldn't do it. But... They'd bring an idea, and it was like, well, Steve Wynn says, I want to sink a ship on Las Vegas Boulevard, and it's burning down while it's sinking, and it's got people on it. Yeah, Steve, there's quite a few ways we could do that. <laughs> See the difference between saying, that's too risky, we don't do it? No, you turn around the other way. We hope you're enjoying our very special edition of A Talk with Bob Gurr on WDW Tiki Room. Stand by. More Bob Gurr when we come back. Ladies and gentlemen, we are currently holding for further traffic clearance. Check out Kristen's new website, MagicalJourneysVacations.com. For all your vacation needs, Disney, Universal, Cruise Lines, and more. Thank you for traveling with us. MagicalJourneysVacations.com. Have her book your magical vacation today. Are you looking for some fun on Facebook with fellow Disney fans? Then you need to join the Sorcerer Radio Disney Fun Zone. The Fun Zone is an exclusive online gathering place where young and old alike can come and share their love of all things Disney in a family-friendly atmosphere. It'll also be your place for exclusive downloads, images, giveaways, and more. Join us online by going to Facebook.com and searching for Sorcerer Radio Disney Fun Zone. That's the Sorcerer Radio Disney Fun Zone, part of Sorcerer Radio, srsounds.com. Rebel Force Radio. Your source for the Force. Star Wars news and commentary. With Jason Swank and Jimmy Mack. I've seen Star Wars 500 times. Weekly live shows and podcasts. RFR. Like Rebel Force Radio on Facebook and follow us on Twitter. Rebel Force Radio. Your new source for the Force. Rebel Force Radio. With Jason Swank and Jimmy Mack. Saturdays at 7 p.m. Eastern on Sorcerer Radio. SRSounds.com.
Sorcerer Radio, srsounds.com. Leave your show comments, requests, and discussion topics on the new WDW Tiki Room voicemail. Call 850-888-TIKI. That's 850-888-8454. And don't forget to follow us on Twitter and Facebook at WDW Tiki Room. And now we return with a sit-down interview with Disney legend and Imagineer Bob Gurr. Well, you know, you did a lot of you did some consulting with Spielberg on Jurassic Park with the first T Rex uh, animatronic, right? So, what was what was that process? Did you kind of apply the same process? Thing? Process. Ah, he called me out on it before he did. So, what was it like to work on a dinosaur? I mean, that's that's even bigger than than uh, Abe Lincoln. Well, I mean, oh, well, Stephen Stephen called and he says. Uh, uh, how soon can you come talk to me? I, I just bought a book. It's not in print yet. It's called Jurassic Park. I'll give you a, a galley proof. I still have the galley proof printer one side only on the pages. And he says, uh, I talked to my guys, and they said, well, don't do anything that big. Hydraulic, this stuff doesn't work. Dino DeLaurentiis' King Kong didn't work with a darn. I designed the King Kong for Universal in 86, um, and it ran for 22 years. It didn't really give a lick of trouble. Big machine. The bigger they get, they're easier because easier, there's more space inside. And he says, I saw it. It runs. Come talk to me. So he was working with companies that do what we call stick puppetry, where, in other words, guys are standing under a grating and they're waving stick around for animals. This is all before CGI. And, uh, but they wanted to do a uh, 30-foot-tall uh, Tyrannosaurus Rex. Um, so I went out and I worked uh, with him. And then I worked with Stan Winston Studio, who later got the job. And I had a couple of guys that helped me with King Kong. They wanted to work uh, for them to keep that technology moving. Uh, but again, it was a case of uh, there was no fear to do a thing like that because it was not outrageous. Um, and they built it. And uh, we don't, they only bro- broke a bearing one night. So we had a downtime of about four hours when they were shooting the thing. Um but that's the kind of stuff, working with a guy like Spielberg, he's on the job every day talking to everybody what they're doing. Those, those are, that's the way stuff gets done. Yeah. Uh, so we'll start opening up to audience questions now. Well, I was curious, like, how did the other Imagineers that you used to work with feel that you, when you got fired and left, what was that experience like? Uh, they use the expression, did you see Gurr's bomb crater? <laughs> <laughs> Well, it's, it scared some people because um, they knew I was outspoken. I was always uh, outspoken. It's, it's just the way, if, if you have opinions and you have observations and you have a lot of life experiences that, are, uh, that, that work. Uh, and again, a lot of people who are diploma-trained engineers, and uh, they, they just had an attitude as well. He's not qualified. You know, he's, he doesn't have the diploma. You know, he's, he doesn't do stuff like, like that. I just do it anyway. Uh, so there was a mixed emotion. But over time, it turned out to be very, very funny. People still would talk to other people and say, you know, they, uh, they fired him, but look what he did after he got fired. There's another guy up in this neighborhood here who got fired, Pixar, John Lasseter. He got fired too. So uh, And look what he went and, went and did. So a lot of times you'll have ornery people in a company that don't necessarily behave the way you're supposed to, and they have their own opinions, and they will cycle through a company, and some of them volunteer to leave, some of them will, will get fired. But that, that does show that there's different paths that people take, uh, but I know it does irritate managers uh, to have those kind of employees. Yeah. So. And, and then when you became a Disney legend, do you feel like that kind of liberated you and everything you did, or that experience? 
No, you know, the funny thing, my, uh, my basic pay was watching the smiles on people's faces when they go to an attraction. And that's like, uh, well, like when we opened King Kong, I took the first ride and I watched the people coming out and the older people were staring and the middle people were clapping and the kids were crying. And I thought, <laughs> and I thought boy, a 30-foot tall gorilla, I know all the parts in there. And it's like, yes. But when you have a legend or a window in Main Street, I've got a whole bunch of awards for stuff. Um, it's nice, you know, to be recognized. But the real recognition is you go to some place that your stuff works and, it, and it's still working and you're having a good time watching them have a good time. Right. So that's, that's the pay part. Yeah, thank you. Okay, next. Hi, so the Haunted Mansion at Disneyland has always been, you know, one of my favorite attractions there. Um, as a kid, I was always awestruck by just how unique it was. And then as I grew up, I, you know, you still go through it and it's amazing when you try to go through and like actually try to figure out how some of these illusions were, were made. Um, was there anything when designing the Haunted Mansion that there were ideas that came up that were just too out there or too crazy to actually build? Well, if you know the history of the Haunted Mansion, some of you might be Disney fans might have read about that. Uh, for a number of years, Walt had a guy by the name of Yale Gracie, one of our free thinkers, just figuring out gags all the time. Uh, so we had a string of gags, and it was going to be a walkthrough. But it was difficult to plan um, guest flow and a, a walkthrough. Monsanto, they voyage through inner space. Anybody ever remember that one? Yeah, you got to be a little bit older to remember that one. Um, I suddenly had an idea for a, a conveyor that could have a car on it that you could uh, rotate the car and pitch it up, pitch it down, that you could point the guest, uh, like going through a movie, you could control the scenes, and it would uh, be an endless chain of vehicles. Well, the minute the people working on a haunted mansion and the uh, gags, they said, oh, we'll make it a ride. Now we can control the whole thing. So it was an attraction that came about maybe in a year and a half, but it was like 10 years with ideas slowly forming. So it's a curious combination of a high-speed conveyor mixed in with a bunch of illusions that now became movie scenes. Interesting. Thank you. A uh, couple of questions. Uh, when, when you talked about how Disney would pop in and give you some great idea to start working on, it would happen really quickly. Did you, did you have other guys popping in on you and telling you what to do, or you know, other people you had to answer to, or how did that work? <laughs> <laughs> that's, a, that's a good one. I don't recall anybody telling me what to do. <laughs> Just that kind of a person. Um, we all literally consulted with one another, because what I said a little bit earlier, in those days we did not have project managers, we did not have coordinators, Everybody doing the work at all different levels, the sum of them chatting every day was the project management team. Stop and think about that. A lot of times uh, companies will have sometimes more managers and coordinators than they actually got people with a hands on a product. And that makes that changes the cost structure completely. Uh, at one time, uh, I became so irritated with projects getting slowed down, a coordinator would come in and says, uh, Bob, I have to, have to answer these questions and explain all this. And every time I'd explain it, they didn't know what it was, and then I have to explain the explanation. And I said, uh, what are you going to do with this? Well, I'm going to take it and make a report, and I'm going to give it to our project manager. 
when your hands are not on the product. Uh, if I stop and talk to you, do you, you realize you just stopped the project? My hands are on the project. And that was a lesson that went through that company so fast, and we still used it in, in later companies. Uh, if you're doing the work, you're part of the managers. You're part of the coordinators, and you don't need everybody else to go do it. You can't do that in all companies, of course. Some of us are very complex. But that was a principle that was present at, in those years, the speed, how things got done so quick. So how quickly did that change after Disney died? Uh, it was not because of Walt's uh, passing. It was more because the, uh, Disney was expanding quite rapidly in the 70s because we were doing Walt Disney World, getting ready to do Epcot. And remember, in 1991, the aerospace industry kind of collapsed after uh, Gorbachev and Reagan agreed to tear down the wall and all that sort of stuff. So we didn't have a lot of military work. So all these engineers are out floating around, and Disney started picking them up. They brought processes. Oh. <laughs> I tell you, meeting uh, an aerospace engineer over 50 was, oh, my God. They, they, they don't think. They just do. You know, they, just, they only do stuff the way they do stuff. And we hired an awful lot of them. And uh, that was the period where it got very sluggish, very sluggish. We're on probably our third generation of uh, Imagineers now. And luckily, we do find uh, a lot of people that didn't come out of aerospace. Uh, they come out of a very enthusiastic type of schools and, and uh, trades that they like to do. So it's, 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 it's a little easier now. But there was that middle period because of the way I told you. Yeah. Uh, one other question. Can, can you talk about testing? Testing? Yes. When, when you were about to set these uh, attractions loose on people, <laughs> what, what gave you any confidence that... Well, in the case of the monorail, um, I put the red train on the beam two weeks before we were going to have the uh, grand opening. So we had two weeks to do what we call test and adjust. But in that case, the first trip the monorail made, uh, and I was at the controls, it went an eighth of an inch with a loud electrical explosion. And, and, oh, and Walt was in the train, but he just got out and looked at me and walked away. <laughs> um, no, this, this is all a true story. It's in, it, you got the book. It's in the book there. Um, every day for the, the following two weeks, the train ran and got almost all the way around and then stopped, and then we towed it in. And so we came up with a fix every night. When machine shop worked at night to doing it. The day before the uh, grand opening, when the vice president was going to come take a ride in it, uh, that's the only time the train ran around one full lap and didn't stop. So I parked it so we're, we're going to cut the ribbon. And when we drive out of the uh, uh, TV shot, we're OK. Um, that's testing. That's what we did. <laughs> uh, we didn't have time to train the operators. Uh, we had them all hired, so they made me a monorail operator's costume and a graveyard shift. So uh, I was the driver, yeah. You didn't have SREs? Huh? Yeah. <laughs> you know, now, well, nowadays, uh, the current... Reliability engineers? <laughs> no, uh, no, really, people were very sensible. You know, safety is the absolute number one stuff. Remember, this thing's up in the air. You know, it's going to go 35 miles per hour, and you, you don't want anybody... Don't want it to fall off the beam or parts fall out of it. Uh, you are always, public safety in amusement parks is right in the top of your head. Every decision you make in detail uh, is looking at the safety of a ride operation. It, it's kind of automatic. 
You don't, you don't have somebody doing that as a service. You're doing it internally because that's what you have to do. Yeah. Thank you. And so you, you said that a lot of the organizational culture comes from the people at the top. So like, like you said, Steve Wynn or John Lasseter or Walt, you know, s s sending those values down. Like as, as companies expand and as you know, leaders may or may not you know, ha have that philosophy, how do, they, how do you gain it if you don't have it and how do you keep it going if you do? Yeah, uh, for your career, you should be very smart and research the company you're going to join because they might have dummy, dumb, dummy, dumb people at the top. Uh, you want to find a company that has smart thinkers at the top. Um, I think all of you found that company. <laughs> yeah. uh, I don't. I, I, it, it's a brutal way to answer that question. There are some companies get going and they're just, over time, they're not really good at what they do, but there's a whole bunch of other companies that they just change the world right and left. Uh, there's something about this part of the planet. I don't know whether it's the water or the air, but there's, there's a level of go-do stuff that's interesting up in, this, up in this area here. I don't know quite what it is, but it's, it's very unique, and there's a lot of people gravitated here uh, just because of that. That's probably not an answer, but that's my observation. Yeah. Well, thanks. Okay. Hi, Bob. Um, I worked at Disneyland for two summers, and it was just a thrill like working around all your achievements and work, so thank you. Um, I guess I'm wondering, how did you collaborate with animators or kind of the arts department just to kind of gel art and engineering together? Remember what I was saying earlier, we all talk to one another all the time. Uh, it was a very common thing that um, since we didn't have what we call a matrix org organization, if you wanted to know something, go find out who's got it and go find out where you can find them. And we just freely walked all over that studio lot. We still do that at uh, Walt Disney Imagineering, which is now in Glendale. Uh, you don't necessarily have to wait for a meeting. Go call somebody up or go over and... Uh, and, and talk to them immediately. You don't have to go with a manager or anything like that. Just go ask. Uh, what would come first usually, like a technical idea or an artistic one? Um, it's a blend. Remember, I mentioned earlier, Walt was very technically savvy about new techniques, new tools, stuff like that. Uh, and he could see how you could take a tool and help tell a story in an, in an improved way. And that was a blend coming out of movies, coming out of animation. Because remember, he did uh, both film and hand-drawn animation. And of course, the company's gone on past all that, you know, with Pixar, because it's all a lot of CGI nowadays. But it's a blend. Remember, we're still telling a story. You know, if it's, if it's Toy Story with Pixar and John Lasseter, that's a story. Uh, a movie's done exactly the same way. You go to Disneyland, you go to uh, like a pirate ride. That's a story. We're telling stories. We just happen to do it in physical 3D uh, without glasses. You ride in the boat and you... that's a story. So that's a common thread. It doesn't matter uh, whether it's animation, mechanical, or writing or whatever. It's, a, it's storytelling. Cool. Thank you. So when you were building new rides and new, new things, how did you balance between like design and drawing and the planning side versus having somebody just go experiment and fiddle and see what they can build? Yeah, we did all of that. And uh, we didn't necessarily have departments that uh, did that. Uh, in the, in the particularly the earlier days, since everybody was talking to one another, and we had a, a very strange way of uh, running a wet enterprise in those days. 
the company deliberately did not let any of the creative people learn what anything cost. I mean, that's, that's, that's really weird. The interesting thing was time was so tight. Like when Walt would start a project, he'd set the day they were going to call the media in and have the grand opening, and then you work backwards with everything to the present day, and everybody could automatically see that, oh my God, we don't have any time to waste here. So you automatically go fast, and you didn't need to budget it. Budgeting, is, in a way, is almost foolish because the guy doing the budget has never built anything. Uh, and the budget is always going to be blown up or down, either way. So the point is, well, don't have the budget. Use your smarts and go fast with your own intelligence. And that works, and that's the way uh, Disney got a lot, of, a lot of stuff done in those days. Thank you. Okay. Um, are there any projects that you wish you had gotten to first, and are there any that you might not have been spearheading, but that you feel you kind of made a legendary contribution to? Ooh, that's a kind of a complicated a one. <laughs> um, you know, I never basically originated uh, an attraction concept. I was always the guy that somebody went to after they had an idea, where it was in the word stage. Primarily words, maybe a little bit of artwork. Uh, and then I, w I would see it, and then I said, oh, I can see how to do that. But it was not where I would be the guy that would suggest the idea. Um, it's kind of a, a moot question from the standpoint that I did so many things, such a big variety, it'd be a tough one to say which one would I have liked to have done that was not done. Uh, in Disney, I, think I was pretty much satisfied everything got a chance to do. But in the mechanical design area, there was one thing I would have always liked to do, design an animated rose parade float for the Tournament of Roses in Pasadena, but nobody called. But, um, but I, would, I would talk my way into the, um, uh, the places that uh, design them and do them and uh, climb up inside them on the, you know, a couple of days later when they're taking them apart to see how they did it. And um, I have a good lady friend that works over at... Um, uh, one of the biggest uh, manufacturers of floats, and they in invite me over several times in the year so I can see the start of the framework, see how the covering's done, then go and see how they put all the flowers in. So, yeah, I, am, I know how that stuff's done. It's really clever stuff, but I just wish somebody would have called. <laughs> I would have lived and done that. <laughs> Thank you. All right. Um. Two, two How are we doing on the time here? We're, we're pretty okay. good, actually. Um, All right. No time, no budget. Um, right. So <laughs> I two, two quick questions. Um, what, what do you look at when you go to a theme park today, whether it's a Disney park or, or one another down the street? Like, How do you experience a theme park? Okay. Uh, I'll answer it in this way. Um, I was made a uh, lifetime... Uh, uh, what do they call it? Life lifetime something, for the Themed Entertainment Association, and if you have that um, honor they give you, you're automatically on the awards committee for life. And I've been on that committee now, gosh, since 1999. Um, and every year we have about 140 nominations come in for entertainment projects of all kinds in the theme business worldwide. So this is my reconnaissance. I get to snoop and see what everybody's doing and how they do it. Uh, and in some cases, we go out and actually uh, look at the attraction and go experience it. 
So I'm in a position that uh, every year I can see what the entire industry as a group is doing. We have maybe 20 people on our committee, and they're all uh, people that are basically presidents of companies or uh, lead uh, designers of companies, and some of them are like me. They're retired uh, legends that come in there and look at everything. So it's interesting to follow this constant improvement of everything. Now, specifically to a specific theme park, as you know, uh, Themed Entertainment Association has given out two awards in two past years for uh, the Wizarding World of Harry Potter at uh, Universal Florida, and then most recently, Diagon Alley. So when I go to those places, I'm sort of like, how come Disney can't do stuff as good as they're doing nowadays? But it does show that as a company gets very mature and the management gets very, very large, it's hard to do what would be like risky stuff. But a company like Universal, they're a lot smaller and they have a design team that might be a tenth of the size of uh, Walt Disney Imagineering. And those guys, like you guys, those are fast thinkers and they decide and they move very, very fast. Uh, they're doing another one at Hollywood uh, uh, Studios. Yeah, in Tokyo, I think. Most recently, uh, Knott's Berry Farm, which is a you know, smaller type of park, opened an attraction called the Voyage to the uh, to the Iron Reef, and it's a it's a shoot 'em up ride uh, with a ride conveyance, four people sit in a row, and you got these uh, blaster guns, and you're shooting scenes. How many people have been to Midway Mania down at Disneyland? Okay, visualize a vehicle that never stops. The screens are endless. You don't stop in a scene. You don't see work lights, so you don't see the track. You have guns, and they're all a different color, so when you shoot something, you can see who, which color's getting the most scores by the way the thing blows up, and it's got 3D animation, the best I have ever seen. And it's a small company in Toronto, and they build a whole attraction like that for like $5 million, where somebody else would spend $100 million, and, and, it's, and it's very complicated. So, getting a chance to go snoop at all these things, and of course with knots, they said, come on down and uh, you, um, you, you help be the VIP to open the thing and take the first ride. And I said, yeah, before I do that, I want to go see everything. I'm crawling into the vehicles and the president's watching me, crawling around, looking at everything. I want to know how everything is done because that's, that's a long-winded answer to your question. I want to know everything about everything. Cool. And then, and then another quick question about your theme park philosophy, like how do you balance the need for nostalgia with the need for something new? You look at Disneyland, there's the annual pass holders there for 60 years, going all the time on the weekends, you'll get Disney World, it's more of a destination place that you go to once every few years. So how do you balance the old attractions with the, the new attractions in, in those theme parks? This guy's dangerous. He just asked the question that's the hardest, hardest question for anybody in the themed entertainment industry. Because on one hand, you'll have a family that loves an attraction and they want to go every year and they don't want it to ever change. You'll have another family that goes and says, same old stuff. Why don't they ever tear that stuff out and do something neat? This range is, is hopeless. Uh, I don't think anybody's ever going to solve that. It's a balance. Because guaranteed, you're upsetting everybody. The ones that are upset because you took it out, and the ones that are upset because uh, it's still there. Cool, thanks. Hi, um, thank you for being here and answering our questions. I have a question about Halloween. I wonder if it's a holiday that you enjoy celebrating. I know you're an inventor, so it's coming up in a few months, and I wonder if you had any 
Um, anything to share about what you've done in the past to celebrate it, things you've invented or projects you think we could possibly do ourselves? Halloween. Yeah. Yep. Now you're asking me to do a concept idea stuff. That's, now you've got to bring a concept, then I'll make the machine work. So it's a, it's a, that question's a little bit hard, but Halloween is, how many of you know the real history of Halloween over, you know, over 100 years? It has changed completely. So that nowadays, um, Halloween is entirely different. There's a big Halloween uh, uh, product display that I go to every year in L.A. I think it's called Scare L.A. That's the craziest stuff I've ever seen people do, and it gets crazier every year. So I'm aware of it, but I don't really know not enough to, to say what's good or bad or what. But it's, there's so many people creating stuff for Halloween. It's endless. Thank you so much for uh, coming to talk to us and also for your contributions to Disney. There's something about uh, the physicality of animatronics that's, for me, totally unique. I don't get it from video games. I still don't get it from movies. I'm curious how you think that will change and what the exciting opportunities are going forward. So you've got, you mentioned sort of animation and CGI mixed with physical rides. Are there areas you find particularly exciting? Yeah, this march of storytelling and technology, it just, it's just constantly grinding along. Uh, I kind of feel sorry for folks today because uh, you have this logarithmic curve and it's climbing up. It's so steep that back in those days, the curve was way down here and not much effort. You got really far. Today, as you know, in just about every industry, uh, you got a curve like this. It takes so much effort to hardly make any advance in it. But it's relentless, it's slow, and it keeps grinding. An example of this is what I was telling you about the voyage to the, uh, uh, the Iron Reef. is a small company uh, with a, some very good thinkers figured out a better way to do a CGI and do it so fast that you shoot something and in, in about a quarter of a second the whole thing blows up in pieces. Not a thing where a little thing falls over like a, like a shooting gallery. When I see people that do that, and it's a tiny company, it's only a handful of people, uh, those kind of people are scattered everywhere. And sometimes a company will see that they can take a piece of this and a piece of that, and with an idea here and a story writer there, and they can make something out of it that really is, is mind-blowing. But there's no, there's no way to forecast it, and it gets very, very expensive, except today some people are doing this uh, very inexpensively and are doing a very good job. Thank you. So you've mentioned how you're now part of like the awards committee and you go around to all of these new theme parks who are bringing out new technologies. Um, how, and you mentioned also like the blaster rides and stuff that, uh, shooter rides that are coming along. How do you feel about the way our rides are changing and the way that they're changing the way we experience these rides. And do you think there's anything about that that won't change moving forward or anything particularly interesting that will change? Oh, I love this question. I get, I get this a, a lot. It has to do with attention span. 50 years ago, people would do any kind of an activity and it would be kind of simple, kind of slow. They would spend quite a few minutes at something. The attention span um, of some people, I think, is right around 20 seconds. Uh, you know what I'm talking about. Uh, you can be bored in about 20 seconds if something is not really interesting. The interesting thing about that is 
the stuff that we spend such a short time at are usually mind-blowing technical achievements. And that goes back to this curve that I'm trying to describe. It's like, how much more do we have to do in the face of people who maybe in 10 years, they'll be down to 15 seconds before they're bored. Uh, that really impacts storytelling because you can't get people to kind of sit down and savor a story, savor all the subtleties of something. Everything is going just like that. We call it multitasking. If you think about multitasking is, you're simply using the same brain doing one thing one at a time, but every five seconds it's going to another thing and it's, you're not doing it all at once, you know. You're just processing this, this, and this in some kind of a, a sequence. The fact that so many people are used to doing this now, you, could, you go on any street, there's a crosswalk, there's cars coming, the person's going across the street, they got a device, stuff stuck in their ears, they are not looking in any direction, they're assuming a, a painted white line will allow them not to be killed. Um, they are so tightly woven into their electronic world that they don't even see a world around them. You, you follow what I'm talking about? Yeah, you've got products and services here that do, do a little bit of that, so I'm not really knocking that. But you got to remember, a theme park, those are the customers that come in there with that type of life and that type of expectation what do you do to get their attention? Well, they'll, well, they'll savor the whole idea. And I've, I'm, I've watched 50 years of this, and that's, it's just a steady trend. Complicated uh, question, complicated answer, so I apologize. Thank right. you. Okay. I wanted to build on that question a little bit. Um, you know, Google started on the web, and we were born of the web, and the way we connected with our users was through the internet, but increasingly Google is expanding what we do. We're getting more into making devices and hardware, and computers, phones, and so the place where we reach our customers isn't always the web. Sometimes it's a real physical place, like a retail store. Um, now, the internet wasn't around when Disneyland and Disney World were built, and I imagine had Walt been around, he would have been fascinated by it. So I guess my question to you is, if you were to build uh, a physical space to bring the web to life in, in real, tangible place, what would it look like to you if that was your job? Um, man, you, I knew this place had brilliant people. <laughs> man, that's a, these are a very heady question. You're getting into a, um, a lot of theory, a lot of uh, social uh, awareness, uh, the methodologies that people use in their lives, a very, very complex uh, mix, and you're trying to approach that mix with your products and your services, uh, I really feel for uh, the anguish you must go through trying to figure out what do we do and how do we really implement this, because number one, you're going to make some money doing it, or you're going to just astound the world if, if, if the thing actually uh, works, which, which you've already done. Uh, I don't know how in the world you dive into the psychology of changing minds over a long period of time to know just how to specify the course you want to take. I'm glad I did all my design so long ago. It was a lot easier. <laughs> Thank you. All right.
Oh, are we running? Oh, yeah. Last question. Okay, you're the last so, question. Right? Sort of two, but um, the first one is, so I love the Jungle Cruise. That's a nice old ride. Love taking it. Love the humor. Can you convince me that I shouldn't feel about It's a Small World like I do? What, what is supposed to be the magic with It's a Small World? <laughs> um... Other than the music, <laughs> uh, Richard Sherman, who wrote us, a very good friend of mine, and he always opens his speeches with, if you love it or hate it, I'm the guy. You know, um, The whole concept, that was a UNICEF concept. It came to us about 10 and a half months before the opening date. It was a show we got into very, very late. The concept was simple. The whole world, if they thought about it, could connect themselves in such a normal, peaceful, quiet manner, expressed as children. That's why we chose one size head, one size face, because we were run, run out of time. We couldn't do it any other way. And we had only the differences of singing and clothing, but the same face. The whole world is, is like the same. That was the idea. That was the rationale. Of course, the world doesn't always turn out the way you want to do that. But some people will go to the small world over and over and over and withstand that song <laughs> uh, because there's something, there's a psychological thing that you pick up and you don't know you're picking it up. Uh, it's been discussed a lot by a lot of people over time. Interesting that you would ask, ask that question because in a way that is a reverse of the changes we see with the technological way people want to be entertained and the attention span getting tighter and tighter and tighter and the fact that you can sit in that boat and it's just a bunch of kids singing. <laughs> and the, the second question I had, uh, and it's quick, I'm sure, uh, was, there, was there a uh, sort of a status symbol attached to what level of ride your thing got? Like your fire truck would be an A ticket ride. And, you know, a roller coaster would be a D. Was there any sort of status associated with which projects you were working on? No, because uh, this was the uh, natural range that you uh, wanted to do because you're going to have A, B, C, D, E. You know, one time, uh, you know, we used a tickets like that, and then, and then it was like just everything's the same. Uh, so as you know, in the vernacular, e-ticket is described by everybody because you know what that meant. That is, that's the big one and that. So we don't really pay much attention to the status of things because you need the little area development things, you need the little subtle things that are quiet to match the big rowdy stuff. So we still look at it as somebody says an A, somebody says an E, we know exactly what that means because it's the range of things that guests would enjoy. Great, thank you. Okay. Hey, it's Greg Grunberg from, well, uh, where do we begin? Uh, Heroes, Alias, Star Wars. Yes, I said Star Wars. And uh, you are listening to Sorcerer Radio. Once again, what a great talent. Bob Gurr. He's like, you know, everyone's favorite grandfather comes over with candy to talk about stories. <laughs> great old Walt and... Uh, and, of course, all of his great inventions. He's worked with Disney Imagineering for so long. Uh, a great sit-down interview with Disney legend Mr. Bob Gurr. Well, I hope you enjoyed it. And if you want more details on this interview and other clips featuring Bob Gurr, uh, check the podcast as it'll be up uh, after the broadcast 
on www.tikaroom.com. We'll have show notes there for you to check out um, the entire interview and so much more. Kristen, where can people find you? They can find me at diningatdisney.com on social media networks such as Twitter, Instagram, Pinterest, Facebook. It's going to be Dining at Disney. However, on YouTube, it's the Dining at Disney. Very good. You can find me at Jedi Mouseketeer as well on all social media, jedimouseketeer.com. And you can also follow us at www.tikaroom.com where we have all of our archive shows and if you like in the earlier uh, beginning of this show we talked about our spoiler free review of Star Wars The Force Awakens how about a spoiler spoiler all the time spoiler review where we give away all kinds of secrets and our thoughts on the show on our sister show WDW After Dark be sure to check that out also where podcasts can be found www.afterdark.com for the archive Jeff Davis, myself, Kristen, and Eric Allen spoil the heck out of Star Wars. So that's a show you want to check out if you don't mind hearing the intimate details of the biggest blockbuster of all time. Having said that, my name is Al John. And I'm Kristen. And we'll We'll see see you you real soon. soon. This podcast is not affiliated with the Walt Disney Company or its holdings and is intended for entertainment purposes. Crisis for the geek kind. Top geek officials admit they underestimated the hipster's defense capability. Join the geek revolution and save the galaxy. Geeks from all over the globe are joining up to fight for the future. They're doing their part. Are you? Want to know more? Join Weeby Geeks and the Geek Revolution and save the world. Service guarantees citizenship. Listen to Weeby Geeks podcast on iTunes and Stitcher or online at WeebyGeeks.net. Weeby Geeks, your voice for the geek revolution. Want to know more?